Was it worth the wait? The Agriculture Bill is out, so what do you make of it? We'll get reaction in a moment. Also, we know the dates for the new beat campaign, so what can we look forward to there? And it's the end of an era, as we say a fond farewell to Open Fields' Chris Spratt. Uh, save your tears for now. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. We waited long enough for it, didn't we? First June, then July, finally this week. Michael Gove showed his hand and released his agriculture bill. Not all were pleased with its contents, it's fair to say. Farm subsidies will be phased out over seven years by 2027, with direct payments replaced with what's been described as a new public money for public good idea, basically rewarding farmers who agree to undertake environmental measures on their farm. Of course, whether the actual sums of money will be the same is yet unclear. The NFU says it falls short of aspiration for a profitable farming industry, and the Deputy President Guy Smith said Gove's vision seems pretty clear. No support for food production. Well, that's the view of the NFU, and of course we heard on the programme from uh, Danny O'Shea last week on the NFU's hopes from the bill. What of Ben Underwood of the CLA? What do you make of the bill? I think the first thing to say is that at last it's good that we have some direction and certainty going forward for businesses to plan ahead. Um, Clearly, uh, the writing is on the wall now. It's quite clear, and we suspected that BPS payments will transition to a public goods-type scheme going forward. Um, Pleased to see that that transition is seven years rather than at the beginning. The sort of suggestion was something like three to five years. So, it, we, we do have a period now from 2021 to 2027 for businesses to adapt to, to the changes ahead. Uh, there was uh, a comment in the, the bill about uh, payments for investment in farming and productivity. I think we need to hear a lot more about that very quickly because a lot of my members, particularly in Lincolnshire, will be looking to that to see how, how are the government going to help um, businesses adapt and drive forward to, to, to survive with life without the BPS payment, how we know it. Yeah, that's it. It is that finer detail that we now need to see, don't we? And I guess that will come maybe through the second reading and things. That just, just to really nail down exactly what will be happening. Yeah, exactly. And we, we believe that the, the second reading is 10th of October. We will obviously be influencing the passage of the bill, how one would expect lobbying MPs and peers, trying to get amendments where we can. Um, and all of this is about trying to make sure, as I say, businesses have time to adapt. The direction is clear. And I think the other thing that we will be really pushing government is we cannot start to phase out BPS as we know it until we have a robust, clear scheme ahead that farmers and landowners can enter into that has simplicity and payments are made on time. Because I think the last few years have showed us uh, we have have a lack of faith in the current situation in terms of countrywide stewardship scheme payments, RPA and so on. And I think the government have have a big task ahead to make sure that they make up some of that lost ground. Yeah, I mean, you touched on it. What do you make of this, you know, public money for public goods idea? Is in principle a good idea? Well, the CLA have long supported uh, and developed a land management contract type um, concept. And I think where there is a market failure, where landowners and farmers are producing all sorts of goods for society at large, then there should be payment for it. And crucially, one of the key points in this, and it does mention it in the literature and press release that come out with the bill, that the government have have at last recognised that payments for environmental work cannot just be based on an income for basis on 
what you could have made by growing a crop of wheat. It has to, going forward, be based on the actual value that society placed on that service that a landowner or farmer is providing. And therefore, what, what I've envisaged us moving towards is that we have a highly profitable farming sector, which is fundamental to all of this, because the environment does depend on having both a profitable agricultural sector as well as a healthy environment. But fundamentally, what we want to get to is, is a case whereby if a landowner says, I can produce all a whole suite of things for society, whether it be flood alleviation, carbon sequestration, soil management, animal health and welfare, uh, they actually get paid an amount that actually makes it an economic and commercially viable decision to go down that route. So it's not just done off the back of farming systems. Of course, there's no guarantee the funds will match current levels of funding, is there? We haven't. No. We, there's no figures around that yet. No, absolutely, and I think that's a, a very valid point. We have a commitment to 2022, um, but uh, obviously Michael Gove, as DEFRA secretary, seems very upbeat, and clearly the, uh, the publication of a public goods type scheme does suggest that there will be a significant pot going forward to invest in the rural economy, which is a good thing. But ultimately, that is a decision made by uh, the Treasury. Uh, and of course, we all know there are competing demands on an ever-tightening budget in the UK. Uh, and so we continue to make the case that three, three to four billion pounds is money well spent if we have a really quality environment and a, and a commercially viable and vibrant agricultural sector. And what about this um, so-called uh, golden parachute? payment um farmers taking several years of payments as a lump sum mm. uh, even if they're not working on the land anymore might uh, ministers hope uh, encourage them to maybe or help them retire if that's what they want to do is, is that something your members would want yeah i think I, I have to say when we canvassed the members um in the consultation the health and harmony consultation where this question was posed there was uh, a lot of variation in opinion. I think the complexities were one thing that put a lot of people off. I think there was also a trail of thought that all of this is about justifying money coming into the rural economy and to de-link it from anything on the land perhaps goes against that to some degree. However, I do think that if done properly uh, and there is simplicity in the system, the ability for people to get a lump sum to retire with dignity from the industry is a very good thing, and that allows new entrants to come in. It also allows potentially people to capitalise payments to invest in you know, storage and, uh, and general equipment that they may need to, to, as I say, boost productivity and steer their way through the phase-out of the BPS. So uh, I think it's good that that flexibility is there. Of course, the devil's in the detail. As ever with these things. Well, as you say, second reading, October the 10th, we think. Yep. Um, so um, we'll just wait and see. But I guess f from the CLA's point of view, you know, the, the hard lobbying continues. Absolutely. Yeah, no, shouldn't rest on our laurels. Hard lobbying continues. And as I say, we need to hear a lot more from Michael Gove on these productivity um, grants and assistance over that seven year period, because that's going to be crucial for many farming businesses. Thanks for that. I resisted the temptation to say Bill and Ben. But anyway, Ben Underwood of the Country Land and Business Owners Association with his and the CLA's thoughts on Michael Gove's agriculture bill. Sean Sparling, our agronomist, what, what do you make of it all? Yes, good morning, Sean. I have indeed read it. Um, I listened to the opinions of the 
CLA before I read it. They were quite upbeat about it, which gave me a bit of hope. Um, they were saying there's a lot of good stuff in there. Then I listened to what the NFU were saying, and they were less happy than the CLA, saying it doesn't go half far enough. And having read it myself, my opinion is it does not support food production going forward in the UK. It's quite simple, really. It supports public money for public good, which is the whole ethos of it, which, quite right, I can understand that. But to suggest that we're not already using that public money for public good is completely disingenuous. When I saw the headline in the Daily Telegraph that Michael Gove's piece said, from today we're going to take back control of British farming, you know, that suggests we're out of control. Absolutely not. We will be out of control if Mr Gove stays in charge of us. Because let's just look at the facts here. Food production is the key to us surviving. We're coming out of Europe next year. By 2027, direct payments for to support agriculture and to support food production are removed. Their own, farmers are only going to get those payments if they can show that they're planting wetlands and trees and hedges and all of those sorts of things. Food isn't really covered in it. What we need to understand is that come 2027 the rest of the EU are still going to be looked after by the common agricultural policy therefore all of our competitors out there in the EU are going to be rewarded and looked after by their respective governments for producing food a vital commodity we are not that is a big concern going forward because we're only about 65% self-sufficient in food in the UK we import an awful lot of food and most of the people we import from are the EU. I mean, we export about two and a half times more more stuff, commodities into the EU than we export to the USA. We import seven times more stuff from the EU than we do from the USA. So if we leave uh, Europe next year with Brexit and it's a hard Brexit or whatever you want to call that and we're dealing under World Trade Organization rules and we think we're going to get these deals with the US... We need to understand we are still going to need to import from the EU because we don't import enough from the rest of the world. And if they're all being supported, if food is being supported and it's not here, we are at an immediate disadvantage whether we're exporting or whether we're importing. That will impact not just on farmers but on every single person who has to buy food because food prices are going to go up. There is no question of it. And all of this so that Michael Gove can court the green vote. That troubles me immensely. My honest opinion, Sean, this bill is not good for food production in the UK going forward. And I am very concerned about the future of agriculture because of this. Right, that's my rant done. That, by the way, is the view of me and my company and not necessarily the view of anybody else. But it's my view and that's how it is. Right, <clears throat> let's just move on then. Uh, oilseed rate, we've seen a slight reduction in cabbage stem flea beetle activity, direct feeding, shot holing out there in the field, although there are still hot spot areas. Um, south of Lincoln at Wellingore, I've got issues. I've got some issues around Potter Hamworth. But there are also fields which have been drilled in the last three to four weeks which are coming up completely unaffected. And there does seem to have been this uh, effect where they found the crops early. If you remember, they started on them about a week ago last Saturday. Um, so a couple of weeks ago. And what we often get is this frenetic period of activity for three weeks or so of direct feeding and shot holing which causes the damage. Then it slows down again. People think they're out of the woods, wipe their brows and move on. But it's now that the next phase of cabbage stem flea beetle activity takes over because they're now laying their eggs in the PTLs and it's that phase which becomes the issue. So it is only by what we've already controlled that we know whether we've controlled the progeny and there's very little
little we can do from here on in uh, with insecticide. Uh, if you get a crop that's absolutely full of cabbage stem flea beetle larvae, the best thing to do is get the sheep on it and let them chew them, the plants down to the floor and carry the larvae off the field because you will not kill the larvae within the plant with another insecticide application. And as we've said before, the right time and the wrong time, there's a right time to spray cabbage stem flea beetle and that is when they are active and you can physically hit them. It doesn't matter whether it's daylight or night time. If they are active, that's the time to spray them because there's no residual activity to those insecticides. And if you know you've hit them and you haven't killed them, there is no point putting another pyrethroid on because the chances are they're resistant. Um, so just bear all that in mind. Slug activity has also increased a tad over the last week with the rain last weekend. That's sort of wet the soil and it's drawing them back up to the surface. And we are seeing a lot of these tiny little grey field slugs, um, some of them only one or two millimetres long, appearing now. So remember the rules with metaldehyde. Remember to use ferrous phosphate around the outside. Um, and remember if you use ferrous phosphate, you will not see the dead bodies on the top. It's more of a chronic poison than it is um, uh, an acute one. Um, and winter wheat is starting to go in the ground. We're starting to get people now who are popping wheat in the ground. Thankfully on land where there is no black grass and that wants to be your priority because what's interesting in the field is the, the dormancy on the black grass can't make my mind up if it's normal or if less dormancy than normal, but it really has come with a vengeance in the last seven days. So if you're working to stale seed beds, which is what you should be doing if you're planning to put wheat into black grassland, get a good flush of four to five hundred seed, seedlings a square metre. That constitutes the flush. Then spray that off, tickle it over again and leave it until you've had another flush before you drill. And I, I get the feeling this year, once again, the correct time to drill on bad black grassland if you putting winter wheat in will be the middle to the end of October. That's it because um, the, the main germination period for blackgrass tends to be the last week of September and the first couple of weeks of October. If we can avoid that, we can be ahead of it. If you're putting it in, use your pre-em stacks, make sure you're doing that job right. Um, so don't let your guard down on the bugs and the grubs, the cabbage stem flea beetle. Keep your eyes open because in this job, things just have a habit of coming round and biting you on the backside when you're not looking at it. <laughs> uh, my dad always used to say, one door closes, another one is very likely to slam in your face. Thanks for that. He's chairman of the Association of Independent Crop Consultants. He's our crop doctor here on the farming programme as well, Sean Sparling from Sparling Agronomy Services. British Sugar this week confirmed the start dates for the 2018-19 campaign. In Bury and also Whissington, it'll start on September the 26th. In Newark, it's October the 2nd. And Cantley will start on October the 10th. So what kind of season can we expect? Nick Morris is from British Sugar. Oh, morning, Sean. A few weeks since uh, I've been on the show, so quite a bit to catch up on. So I thought the best place to start is, uh, is with this year's crop. And at last, we've seen some useful amounts of rain after a long period of drought. Uh, for people driving past uh, fields, they'll have seen that the canopies really have recovered and produced uh, lots of new leaf uh, material, which will be capturing all of that solar radiation, and as such is enjoying significant growth in these mild conditions. In terms of foliar disease, uh, following uh, that recent rainfall, we are seeing some powdery mildew, rust and cospora, and can be found in, in most crops, but really is at very normal levels. Owing to the drought and delayed appearance of uh, disease, the first fungicide applications was generally applied a week or two later than normal. It was around the beginning of August, so second applications will have been required two or three weeks ago. Many growers will be applying their third fungicide in the last week of September, subject to the planned lift date of the crop and observing the harvest intervals on the product label. 
So really, thoughts uh, as we start to close the, the gate on the crops with agronomy, thoughts should be now turning towards maximising the recovered yield and specifically just-in-time harvesting in milder conditions which typically run towards the end of November. So when sugar beet is harvested, the roots are respiring and exhausting all of that hard-earned and grown sucrose that it's been working on throughout the whole of the year. And that is actually hastened in warm temperatures, hence why I talk about the beginning of the season. Whereas when the crop is in the ground still, it's photosynthesising and therefore assimilating sucrose and increasing in yield and value, also hastened in warm temperatures. So it's really critical that uh, delivered yield um, is maximised and is hugely impacted at the beginning of the season uh, if more than a few days pass between harvest and delivery. So what does that mean for growers? That means really great detailed planning uh, with their harvesting and haulage contractors as well as ourselves at, uh, at the factories. So that's where uh, growers' time should be spent on the sugar beet crop at the moment. In terms of prospects for this year's crop, um, sugar beet yields, they are expected to be much lower than last year. you recall last year we had a, a record crop and that really is a consequence of later drilling uh, this season due to the, the wet spring weather. Uh, followed by the unusually uh, dry summer we've all been talking about over the last year. That said, we have seen many seasons produce vast increases in yield through the autumn and into the winter if conditions prevail. Uh, And uh, it can be as much as 50%, so it's really difficult to forecast what the final result will be, but uh, we've sort of receiving frequent reports from uh, a number of growers about how positive they are about the crop that they've got on the farm. So we'll, uh, we'll wait and see. So on to the 2019 crop. This week, uh, British Sugar and NFU Sugar were pleased to announce their agreement on sugar beet contract terms for next year. We have agreed some important principles for contracting in future years that we believe really help deliver transparency and certainty in a highly competitive market. Specifically, we are pleased to have agreed a contract price of £19.07 with no crown tear deduction for the one-year 2019 contract. Importantly, though, this is equivalent to £20.42 under the terms and conditions of previous contracts with the Crown Tear deduction. So £20.42 is the the price that we're comparing. In addition to this, will be an enhanced revenue share mechanism of 15%, so that was only 10% in, uh, in 2018, for growers above an EU average white sugar price of €375 per tonne, and that's down from €475 a tonne in 2018, which hopefully all in all makes the the revenue share more um, achievable. There'll be no new three-year deal on offer for the 2019 season. We've also agreed that crown tear deductions will be removed permanently for all new contracts agreed from the 2019 crop onwards. Lastly, I just wanted to share an opportunity for sugar beet growers to take part in the Sugar Industry Programme. This provides a fantastic opportunity to any grower who wishes to learn more about the UK sugar industry and develop their professional skills. It's a jointly funded programme by British Sugar and NFU Sugar, now in its ninth year of delivery. The programme will take place between November 18 and March 19, and participants will get the opportunity to undertake a number of visits and training modules. And as actually the uh, I took part in the first cohort, I can uh, uh, really uh, can't compliment this uh, program enough. So I'd encourage anybody to uh, go onto the NFU website, NFU Sugar website, uh, to look at the further details and uh, indeed apply. So I hope uh, there's plenty of people which apply 
uh, that have listened to the show. Sounds like a great opportunity. It worked for Nick. It might work for you. Nick Morris there at British Sugar, and we'll chat some more as the campaign gets back underway. Now, when that campaign does get underway, Chris Spratt from Open Field will be sailing off into the sunset. Yep, he's retiring. <laughs> How long have you been at Open Field, Chris? Uh, well, uh, 12 years. 12 years. Wow. And I don't know how long you've been doing the farming show. You've obviously done it with me for three years, Sally before that. I think it's about ten years when I when I look back the other day, actually. Yeah, the, the very yeah. first recording was lost over Noah's Ark, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, thankfully. Anyway, anyway, here he is with his last report then. Mm. I hold the tears back. Mm. It's Chris oh, Pratt. Yeah. Yeah, good morning, good morning. Um, right, well, yet again another USDA report uh, from America and further proof, really, that they're proving a law unto themselves this season. Um, but nevertheless, their findings can dramatically influence our market. Analysts and traders had actually had expectations of, of reductions in the US maize corn yields. Um, they blew that apart by forecasting a harvest increase overall of just over 6 million tonnes, which is potentially a new record forecast uh, in America of 376 million tonnes of maize, which is a phenomenal figure, really. This, of course, is a forecast, and before harvesting starts rolling in earnest. Nevertheless, the inevitable sell-off by the fund longs has probably put paid, I think, to any short-term revival in our pricing prospects. On wheat, they found an additional 6 million tonnes combination of uh, Russia and, uh, and India, which was unexpected. But, again, on the flip side, they failed to adopt uh, official Australia and Can- uh, Canadian figures in their total, which would have actually uh, cancelled out uh, most, of, most of that. Uh, interestingly, the Russian increase was put down to increase spring wheat prospects. Uh, so that's grain that was planted in March, April, May. Uh, uh, that's quite a leap of faith, actually, because there's still tremendous millions of millions of tons still standing in the fields out there. Uh, it's green still, and you know there are forecasts of snow and rain, so we could see that figure alter throughout the season. News that the uh, ethanol plant at uh, Hull was closing, uh, well, that will reduce domestic demand to a certain extent, and, of course, that's had an effect on weakening the cash prices, particularly in, in the north, you know, I would say in, in our region, really. Uh, UK wheat now, well, that's starting to get uh, towards export values, and, and therefore the imported isn't really stacking up at this moment in time. Um, so maybe we're getting towards the bottom end of the range, we'll have to see. UK wheat supply and demand is finally balanced. Uh, the market's now in the grip, really, of the funds and the analysts at the moment until we start seeing the outcome of the maize crop. Uh, I think with uh, all concerned, really, uh, in the trade, seemingly unable to second-guess any accuracy of the next USDA report. Uh, at some point, I think the fundamentals will kick in, and that'll do Tatu once, what and, and where it's coming from, really. Malting barley consumers uh, absent uh, this week from the market, really, having taken uh, taken a bit of pain. Uh, trading levels difficult to establish. The export market has given us some direction, but it has been at lower levels. Molsters and brewers are, are, are really, throughout Europe, currently assessing what quality acceptance levels they can use to attract enough of the crop, particularly on the continent, I would say. The UK, we're better priced than most, as things stand at the moment. We've got reasonable volumes of generally good quality. Uh, oilseed rate, well, the report there turned out to be overall bearish for the oilseeds market, uh, increasing world-ending stocks, U.S. production and, and U.S. ending stocks for soya beans came in. They all came in higher than expected. 
Uh, despite this, the all-seed rate production forecast was down, but the market still took the news rather negatively. And finally, beans. Well, we've seen the first human consumption exports have taken place uh, this week uh, from the north, where the UK has managed to produce some quality beans, really. Human consumption shipments will be down this season. Uh, Brookie damage has significantly affected quality overall, uh, uh, and yields are very disappointing, really. So maybe there's a bit of mileage in the feed market at this moment in time. Uh, it may be we see a flurry of exports in the nearby positions, but certainly the forward uh, forwards are neglected. As far as prices are concerned, feed wheat November 18, 167 to 169 X farm, with May 2019, 173 to 176. And then looking forward to new crop, Nov 19, 155 to 158. Bread making wheat for this November, uh, 183 to 187 plus a pound a month. Feed barley, 165 to 168 plus a pound a month through to January, with premiums now for springs quoted at 25 to 30 pound, dependent on location, and winter's probably 10 pound behind that. All seed rape, November 18, 314 to 318, with May 19, 318 to 322. Beans, uh, feed beans, 200 pound X for uh, October, November, plus a pound a month through to December. And then really you need to have a word with your farm trader to just uh, catch up on the human consumption market based on individual varieties. Wheat futures about £5 down on the week, but still £28 to £29 better than they were three months ago. And interestingly, Sean, when I just looked back the other day over the last ten years or so, if we're looking at highs and lows, one final figure uh, over this time, uh, the lows of the market on the wheat futures were December 2008, I think 1st of December 2008, at 87.50, which means growers at that stage would have been receiving around about £80 a tonne. And the highs, believe it or not, four years later, 12th of March 2012, so not e- not this recent season, even though we've seen some good prices, where wheat futures peaked at £224.50p, which means growers, if they'd been lucky to have had anything left after that disaster of a season, would have got somewhere around about £220 a tonne. That would have been nice. It would have been nice. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for all you've done for the programme over the years. Thanks, Sean. And, and, rest. and thank you for giving me the opportunity to... Uh, do the panto over the years. I can now add to my CV, uh, I've been a grain man, wise man, a swan, a dwarf, even though I'm six foot three, and um, I think a trapeze artist in the future. So well, thank possibly, you very yes, much. You will be in the new, don't go, spoilers, spoilers for this year's farming panto, but we <laughs> can't mention that yet. <laughs> Thanks, John. The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. Things might actually warm up again uh, this week. Uh, could be windy because of uh, ex-hurricane Helene which will bring a bit of uncertainty, but we might see some uh, winds blowing from the south, making temperatures certainly on Tuesday a little warmer. Today, possibility of some rain, but it should be mostly dry. Highs of 20 Celsius, the wind from the southwest, 20, maybe gusting at 30 miles an hour. Overnight tonight, again, there's possibility of a band of rain sweeping over, but again, hopefully it should be mostly dry. We're looking at 10 early tomorrow. The wind from the southwest, about 10 miles an hour. And then a sunny start to Monday, some cloud to come through the afternoon, 20 the high. The wind from the southwest, again, 10 to 15 miles an hour. As I say, Tuesday, that's when it looks like being a sunny and warm day. We might see temperatures in the mid-20s. The wind from the south, 15 to 25 miles an hour. And then clear skies overnight, Tuesday into Wednesday. That wind continuing from the southeast, 15, sometimes gusting at 35, maybe even early on Wednesday, up to 50 miles an hour. That'll keep temperatures quite high, actually. 20, the low for Wednesday. 22, 
the high for Wednesday. We'll keep a check on that. And then it looks like being a rather wet end to the week. More unsettled. The jet stream will be on the move. That's the uh, reason for that. But as ever, it can change. That's where the hourly forecasts become key. We'll uh, keep updated each hour as we get into the week. For now, though, that is the forecast. Our last word this week goes to England cricketer Alistair Cook. Well, sort of, via a young farmer by the name of Charlotte Cunningham. Cook, of course, is also a sheep farmer. And in the week he retired from Test cricket, in I'm sure you'll agree, tremendous style, Charlotte recalled an encounter with him, not knowing who he was, having stayed with him and his in-laws on a young farmer's exchange programme. She told her followers on social media that, sat around the table at breakfast, he told us he played cricket, for us to then ask, are you any good? His reply, I'm all right. (laughs) All right, indeed. Happy retirement, Alistair Cook. More time maybe to spend on the farm, perhaps, who knows? Maybe catching up with our programme as well. Happy retirement also again to our own Chris Spratt. We will miss him. Until next week, take care.